I want to go ahead and, and get going this evening on a lesson that I'm titling, you have heard that it was said. This is actually a title that will be uh, one big long sentence if you put this one with next week because Jesus tells us, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. And so what I want to do is I want to look tonight at those moments in the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus uses that phrase, you have heard it said, some derivative of that. It's not always word for word, but you get the point. Uh, and then next week we'll finish this little look because there are several moments in the fifth chapter in which Jesus lays this out. Um, before we take a look at those, I, I just want to remind you of something we have said several times in the past in regards to the teachings of Jesus, but is really, really on display for tonight's lesson. Um, and that is Jesus frequently in his ministry and particularly in the Sermon on the Mount challenges our understanding of scripture. And by our, I mean his audience. He challenges their understanding by saying, here's what it says, here's what you've heard, here's what was written in ancient times, but I say to you. And if we're gonna be fair, we need to at least wrestle with what we would have thought if we were standing there and we had all of that Torah in our minds and we had all of the teachings in our minds and we had the ancient fathers in our minds and this young, minister, it's the best we can call it. We, he wasn't a rabbi necessarily, they called him rabbi meaning teacher, but he wasn't formally educated in the schools of Judaism. And yet he's healing the sick and raising the dead and he's making an impact with his ministry. And his response is, you've read this, heard this, saw this, and been taught this, but here's what I say to you. And I think it's easy for us 2000 years later, and we're followers of a resurrected Jesus to say, gosh, those, those dummies, they should have just took whatever. Well, how, how could they put Jesus on the cross? They should have been following every word he had to say. And that's easy for us to do. That's, and it's not fair. But if we could put ourselves in that moment, what would we have thought if we heard Jesus say, you've heard it say, in fact, the chapter and verse would be this, but here's what I say. And I don't know what you would think, but I know me and I know what I would have thought. And I would have struggled with that. Um, in fact, I would have struggled with that just a few years ago not just 2,000 years ago, just a few years ago, I would have struggled with anyone even pointing out that Jesus said, you've heard it say this, but I say to you, because I go, well, we must have misunderstood what we heard, or we must not be understanding Jesus properly. And that's worth going down that road, but I think what we all know is that uh, Jesus challenged the way people thought about the word. And why? Just because he wanted to be cantankerous? Because he liked a good fight? because he thought he was smarter than everyone else? Or is there something much more exciting? And I think that's the answer. In fact, we are Christians based upon our following of Jesus, not our beliefs in Judaism and not our beliefs in the Bible even, but because we are followers of Christ and we get to look deeply into what Jesus had to say. So to start with tonight, I wanna to point out that there are six moments in the fifth chapter in which Jesus uses our, what we'll use as our subtitle. This week it's, you have heard that it was said, Next week it was, but I say to you, and I only use that so that you know we're not going to do all six tonight so you don't freak out because, of course, I'll have a good intro, a big intro. I don't know if it'll be good, but it'll be long. Um, <laughs> story of my Tuesday night. Um, and uh, so I'll have an intro. And then when we get into those six, it's gonna, we're going to slow way down. You're going to think, oh, my goodness, we'll be here all night if he does this speed. So we're not. So next week we'll conclude. My goal is intro and then two out of six. 
Okay, then next week we'll try to cover the other four. What I want to do to start with so that you know where they are, you probably already do, but you, if you're a hard, you carry a hard copy, you take notes, you underline stuff, this is worth doing. So I want to show you each one of them just in the way that the New King James reads them. Um, and they are in sets of two, so two verses per incident. And I use them in sequential order. Matthew 5, 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, to those of ancient times, actually in the Greek, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be put in danger of the judgment. And this is all in quote, the latter, all of this is in quotes, but there's also sub quotes inside the verse, which means Jesus is actually quoting other material. He's quoting the sixth commandment and he's adding the punishment for breaking the sixth commandment inside of the command. And so don't murder. Whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment and the judgment according to the Torah was death. All right, because that was, if you killed, you were killed. That's the ultimate eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, which he will actually cover in this as well. But I say to you, so you see how this verse starts? But I say to you, there's the rebuttal. Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, will be in danger of the council. And I'm going to leave that because that's, we're going to cover this tonight. Okay, so we're not going to spend a lot of time here right now. But that's your first set, sixth commandment. You have heard, but I say. Next set comes in 27, 28. You have heard that it was said to those of old or to those of ancient times, you shall not commit adultery. Seventh commandment. 28. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Second moment in which our subtitle is used. You have heard it said what? Don't commit adultery. Seventh commandment. Doesn't give the requisite punishment. Just lays it out there. We'll talk about why in a moment he's on his way to something else. But I say to you, his rebuttal, of course, is not um, ignore the seventh commandment. Notice his, his, his rebuttal is never going to be to ignore it. His, his rebuttal is never going to be, eh, that's not that important. We can do better. No, he always just takes it and then elaborates on it. So it's not as if he gets to the sixth commandment. Murder is not that big of a deal. Adultery is not that big of a deal. But he takes it to another level for a reason. And that's why we need to get into the, but I say to you in each of these passages, the third moment is Matthew 5, 31, 32. Furthermore, it has been said. And in this case, it wasn't that just that you have heard, but it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. 32. But I say, whoever divorces his wife for any reason, except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. This is the fame. This is the third one. This is the famous um, divorce passage Jesus deals with in the Sermon on the Mount, reaching way back into not just, not the Ten Commandments here, but reaching back into the teachings of Moses, who writes of deep into the Torah about the certificate of divorce. Fourth set, again, uh, 33, 34. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old or those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Uh, we'll get into where these are, chapter and verse, uh, as we cover them. But I say to you, here's his rebuttal, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne. Then there's more. We save that for next week when we get deeper into what that verse means. And so this is the moment where Jesus starts to speak about lying, uh, but not merely lying. He expands it to the giving of oaths, to the swearing of promises, to the laying out, uh, uh, to attaching yourself to a truth. Okay. Uh, 38, 39, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye. And a tooth for a tooth. This is probably one we've quoted as much as any of these, 39. But I tell you to not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is, this is the, the, the fifth moment 
um, the famous pull from the Torah in which reciprocity is equal to the attack. If I'm struck on the face, I strike back, etc. And he is going to overcome that. Uh, and then one more, 43, 44. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Um, love your neighbor is most certainly codified in the law. Hate your enemy is not. This is the one moment out of six that Jesus gives us something they had merely heard, but not something they had heard in Torah, just something they had heard. And when we get there next week, we're going to have to dig into the psychology of why love your neighbor has as its ante hate your enemy. You don't even have to be taught that. You don't hear it in the Torah. You don't hear God say it. And yet Jesus has heard it so much, he brings it up. He says, you've heard it said. Where'd you hear it said? And, uh, and so sometimes we've got to be real honest about where we're hearing what we're hearing. And maybe we don't always attribute it to God. So Jesus doesn't say God said, but you've heard that it was said. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 44. But I say, and here's that final one. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those that curse you, do good to those that hate you. Pray for those that spitefully use you and you persecute. There they are. Okay, I know we didn't do much with them because that's what we're doing this next two lessons to really try to unpack what did Jesus mean when he said, you have heard it was said, but I say to you. We preface this entire thing. As you noticed, all of that's in five. I walked through you sequentially. The only things we were skipping was the fullness of each story. Sometimes I would leave some verses off because there was a lot of stuff in there that we're going to get into as we take care of each of these. Otherwise, it's boom, straight shot. Jesus basically opens his sermon with the Beatitudes, salt and light, fulfillment of the law. You've heard it said, you've heard it said, you've heard it said. That's chapter five. And it's just straightforward. And so there's a lot of challenging stuff in chapter five. It's probably the most challenging portion of the Sermon on the Mount. But we skipped one of the most important moments if you're really going to understand the Sermon on the Mount. And part of that's the Beatitudes, which we've done some work with, but we have not finished yet. I, I know we didn't cover all of them. We will. That's my plan. But the important moment we need is 517 because Jesus will show you in verse 17 what you need to know about everything that comes after it. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, we don't get this here, but we will get this later in his ministry when Jesus goes to the top of the mountain of transfiguration and they see Moses and Elijah, the very embodiment of the law and the prophets to a Jew. To, the, to a Jew, the law was Moses. The prophets are Elijah. We see God open the heavens in that moment. He causes Moses and Elijah to disappear. They get brought back into the heavens. And the voice from heaven says, this is my son, hear him. And Jesus is the only one left on the field. And what James and John do is walk, Peter, James and John walk down that mountain with the knowledge that what they just saw was the absolute glory of God shining from the inside out and that there's no one that can equal it, not the law or the prophets. And so that's coming up in the ministry of Jesus. To set that up, Jesus opens his sermon with, don't think that I have come to destroy or abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to destroy and abolish. I came to fulfill. Why would he open with, don't think I've come to, to destroy the law and the prophets, if he wasn't about to give you a sermon that challenged your understanding of the law and the prophets? The fact that Jesus had to say, now don't think I'm against it, must mean this sermon's about to convince you I'm against it. 
So I'm laying this out here at the beginning. So pay close attention to what I'm saying because it's going to be unlike anything you've ever heard before. That's basically what Jesus is saying. And don't get it into your mind that I've come to do away with. I've actually come to redefine it. See, I don't believe that Jesus is elevating us past the law to the place that we can't do it so that we'll turn to Jesus as our Redeemer. Um, I know that's kind of a popular way to teach the Sermon on the Mount. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. Um, it has him teaching beyond his audience. It has the, they're going to leave hopeless because he hasn't died on the cross. He hasn't resurrected from the dead. They can't do any of this if that's what Jesus is doing. And he might as well just tell them. Like, forget it. You can't do it anyway. You're going to need the day of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the resurrection to even come close. And even then when you don't, uh, I'm going to make up the difference in you. And yet that's kind of how we've taught that through grace. I think it's much better than that, in fact. Because by saying this, Jesus is saying, don't think that what I'm about to say to you means that there's a problem with the law. Just realize that just because you can do the things in the law, it doesn't mean you keep the law. Let me say that again. Just because you do what the law says doesn't mean you're keeping the spirit of the law. So he opens with the easiest one, the one no one in his audience is committed. And I'm going to bet no one in this room is committed. Thou shalt not murder. Odds are we're all innocent of that. He opens with the one that the whole hillside can go, nah, yeah, I got that one nailed. Thou shalt not murder. And he said, don't think I've come to get rid of that. I've come to fulfill it. And fulfill it doesn't mean live it so that you will never live it, but it meant something else. Let me show you what it meant to the early church. Paul says this in Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another. He who loves another has fulfilled the law. I'm going to leave that up for a moment. I, just want, you, I want you to put that one in your, in your mental bank because, man, do we need to remember this. What does it mean to fulfill the law? And if you say, well, fulfilling the law is Jesus dying on the cross. No. What's it mean to fulfill the law? It means never failing. No. Jesus didn't come and wait till he died to fulfill the law. What's the point of the Sermon on the Mount? And fulfilling the law is not doing all of the right thing. Otherwise, why elaborate? You have heard it said, thou shalt not kill, but I say. You don't need to say anything else. Just don't kill. I mean, what elaboration do you need, right? Uh, just go around the room and go, hey, how many of you haven't killed? And if your hand goes up, he goes, well, you passed. Congratulations, law fulfilled. And yet that's not what Paul thought. Paul says, if you love somebody, you fulfilled the law. Now, if Paul's right, we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt. If Paul's right, what might Jesus have meant when he said, think not that I've come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill the law. He might have meant, I've come to show you what it looks like to love. Watch how I do it. You're going to watch the law be fulfilled. Sometimes we think if you could watch the law be fulfilled, you would be looking at moral perfection. And that's where we stop. And while you would look at moral perfection, if you look at Jesus, moral perfection is not the, what it means to fulfill the law because you don't commit the sixth commandment or you don't commit the seventh commandment or you don't do this or you do that to fulfill the law a man that loves another. now how do i know that we're on the same page though maybe paul's out here in left field talking about some other law it's very possible because by the way paul throws the word law around a lot in his teachings if you've read paul he talks a lot about the law and he talks about it sometimes in completely made up scenarios. I mean, Paul's fourth chapter of Galatians is uniquely Paul. 
where, where he goes, Hagar is the law from Sinai and Sarah is the promise. And no one else in the whole Bible had ever said that, but Paul did because he used it as an allegory. That's okay. But you got to understand that sometimes what Paul's calling law, he even sometimes quotes the book of Psalms, calls it the law, which wasn't necessarily what we would call the law. So maybe we're not talking about the same thing. Okay, look at verse 9. For the commandments, you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not bear false witness, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Love doesn't... Okay, well, time out. Obviously, we're talking about the law, right? Because we have thou shalt not, thou shalt not. In fact, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder is commandment seven and commandment six. Jesus opens with commandment six, moves on to commandment seven in the Sermon on the Mount, in which he talks about the things that you shall not do. Paul goes through and quotes some of, not all, some of the Ten Commandments, and then even admits any of them I might have missed would be summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Ten, love doesn't harm a neighbor, therefore love would be the fulfillment of the law. And so Paul's statement is essentially, you can keep the list, don't, 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 do, 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 but that's not fulfilling. You don't fulfill because you do them perfectly. So the fulfillment is in the love that each of those contain. In fact, Paul does a couple of things special here in the Greek. Paul uses the definite article in front of the word love, which would render it as the love. Can you go back one screen, Brian? Let's plug that in. Verse 10, definite article. It doesn't show up in the English. It should. Definite article in front of 10. The love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, the love is the fulfillment of the law. And the definite article means Paul is not giving a general statement of love, but he is specifying the kind of love you have learned by knowing Christ. All right. The love, definite article. So it's not just loving somebody that fulfills the law. It's the love exemplified in who Christ is. This, this, that little bitty definite article right there that you can't see in the English, but is there in the Greek, that you might as well write in the word Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus opens his sermon by saying, don't think I come to destroy it. I'm here to fulfill it. Here's what it looks like. So when you get to the love, it's going to look like the sermon, because it's literally the fulfillment of what Jesus does. Now, uh, go back, yes. He also uses a special Greek word here. He uses the Greek word pleroma for the word fulfillment. Love is, the love is the pleroma of the law. Pleroma is a word that gets translated in the English as fulfillment, but it's a word that means something much deeper in the Greek. It's not used all that common in the Greek. And it indicates something put into a container in order to fill up that container. So Paul's theology has the law as the container and love is what fills up the container, not performance. See where we mess that up? So we, we preach the law as performance. Do so that God will. That's the same mistake Israel makes in Romans 9 in which Paul says she thought she could be righteous by keeping the law. You can't be righteous by keeping the law. He goes, I could wish I were a curse and my brethren would come to Christ. He says, but they are ignorant of God's righteousness going about trying to establish their own righteousness. What are they doing? They're trying to fill the law up with their goodness. You can't fill the law up with your goodness. You're not good enough. None of us are good enough. We, because James declared if you break one point of the law, you break the whole law. Because if you crack the vessel, all the water comes out. So it doesn't do you any good to keep it most of the time. You dropped it. 
<laughs> you go, yeah, but I held it all day. Big deal. You dropped it. It's broken. And so keeping it most of the time isn't effective. But it's not what the law is meant to contain. It's not meant to contain the goodness of God's people, the morality of God's people. It's meant to contain the love of God towards mankind. That was what the law came to do. We replaced that with works righteousness, with performance righteousness. With, with, we went underneath a covenant of our own works, or at least we do up here. I know we weren't because we're not Jews living under Sinai, but we still go under that performance and we need to get out of that mentality. What Christianity has to do is reclaim love, not performance. All right? Reclaim love, not my works. My works were never what the law was supposed to be full of other than the work of my love. And so that's what Paul is laying out for us. That gets us to our first, you have heard that it was said. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Um, quite simply, you have heard that in the law, in the Mosaic law, what we would call the sixth commandment, it says thou shalt not kill. And the punishment for murder was that you were killed. It was tit for tat. Most of the law is built around that, but most certainly the law against murder was that there was capital punishment as authorized under the Torah Mosaic Code. Now, Jesus doesn't give us his opinions here on capital punishment. He doesn't give us his opinions here on whether or not you should be judged if you murder. He isn't here. This is what has been difficult kind of to wrap my mind around. Jesus isn't here to give running commentary on the law. He is here to show us that the law is more than the keeping of rules and regulations, more than do's and don'ts, but what it was doing was showing us the genuine love required. And so it's easy to look at the sixth commandment and go, I'm fine. If I think performance is what makes me fine, I'm fine. I haven't broke the sixth commandment, right? I didn't kill anyone. Therefore, if I'm basing my ability to keep the law based on morality, I kept the sixth commandment. This is our first indicator. Why does Jesus start here? I think he starts here because probably no one's broken it. And it's not that he wants to show us we're a bunch of losers or that we're not as good as we think we are. It's to show us that the point was never to keep you from murdering. Although that's not a bad idea to keep you from murdering. The point is that while if you replace the law with the ability to keep it to the letter, you might miss the spirit of that law. And the spirit of that law is not just don't kill your brother. The spirit of that law is your brother. See how we can mess that up? The spirit of the law is not I look at that and go, I didn't murder, so I'm fine. Who cares what I said about him, did to him, thought of him? Doesn't matter. I didn't kill him. And all you got to do is keep the law, and that makes you righteous. You go, whoa, 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 no. Keeping it doesn't make you righteous. But I don't even know if we know what keeping it means. And so Jesus is saying, let me show you what keeping it would have really looked like and what it really looks like. 22 says, but I say. So here's Jesus now showing us what it would look like to really fulfill the sixth commandment. I say to you that whoever's angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Without a cause is tricky because it's not our oldest trend. That baby doesn't show up to about the fourth century. 
without a cause. Okay, so for about 300 years, we don't have any written evidence. For over 200 years, we don't have any written evidence that Matthew 5, Jesus said, whoever's angry with his brother without a cause. Somewhere around the 5th century, we get indications this starts floating into the scribal translation. What we don't know is, was it originally there and ignored? So this is why we'll never know on some of these what, where the source really is. Was it there and ignored because it let you off the hook for anger? Was it added to let you off the hook for anger? We don't know. So I'm not going to dwell on it. I just want you to know it because that's what Bible study is all about. You can go do your own looking into why that does or doesn't exist. So I'm not going to try to tell you who, when you are allowed to be angry. It doesn't seem to be what Jesus is trying to do. It's like, okay, let me give you a couple moments where it's fine to be angry. We do know that anger is an emotion Jesus knew how to tap into because he most certainly was angry when he overturned the money changers' tables in the temple. But it's not a template for how you should live your life. I'd rather Jesus turn the tables over than me. Okay, that's kind of how I look at them. People go, man, there's a, there's a time you got to turn over money changers. Probably right. But if you'll notice, he didn't turn to Peter or James and John and go, next time you get it. Next time you guys turn them over. So I, I'm going to leave that to Jesus. If he turns your tables over, great. Don't call me asking me to turn tables over. Because Jesus didn't turn around and go, Thomas, next week you got the tables. You know, it's all on you. Um, I say, whoever's angry with his brother without a cause is danger of judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So we got, we got big time sixth commandment, don't commit murder. And then Jesus delves into these three scenarios in which he keeps sort of upping the ante. Um, you're angry, there's a judgment. You say to your brother, Raka, you're in danger of the council. And then if you go even further and say, you fool, you should be in danger of hellfire. So what do these mean? Let's start with Raka. An Aramaic word, when you spell it in Aramaic, it's actually a K. So I used a K. Um, Aramaic word meaning foolish or empty-headed or worthless. In a way, it's Jesus saying, so you say to your brother, you're a fool. He goes... It's a warning against that, and it's odd that he puts it on par with murder. That's where we struggle with this. So we're not to assume that Jesus is trying to say that if you say you're a fool, it's as if you murdered. It is. The injunction against murder, you feel good about keeping that because you didn't murder, but I'm here to show you there are other ways to tear people down than to slit their throat. And he goes, and the keeping of the law would be to love your brother, into the, and that would be the fulfillment of the law. So let's look at a few examples of what we might do day to day in which we do not respect our brother or who they are. And so that's what Jesus does in this portion of the sermon. Now, he says if you call them foolish, empty-headed, or worthless, you're in danger of the council. The council was the Sanhedrin. By the way, the Sanhedrin is who Jesus stands in front of before he goes to the cross. This is the Jewish high council that actually recommends his death to Pontius Pilate. It consisted of 70, and I put in parentheses, or 72, because honestly, it really depends on what rabbinical tradition you read after, and it depends on what period of history you were in in the Sanhedrin, whether it was 70 or 72. Israel loves the number 70, by the way, when it comes to things of that nature, but um, thus the Septuagint is the 70, which was probably the Sanhedrin, translating Hebrew to Greek, Old Testament. It's made up of priests and scribes. It handled religious offenses such as blasphemy. 
And the Sanhedrin held the Jewish power to stone to death. Now, there was a limit to the Jewish power to stone to death because they were under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And so you didn't just go around doing whatever you wanted to do with capital punishment as long as Rome was in charge. But Rome didn't really have a problem letting religions enact capital punishment. They thought that was a pretty good idea. If you want to start killing people in the name of your gods, go for it. Just, um, you know, if you need our help, let us know. That was kind of the way Rome, that's the way Rome treated it. That's exactly how Jesus goes to the cross is they go, you try him first. He's your guy. And they go, well, we think he deserves death. And Pilate says, well, you know, what did he do to deserve death? And they tell him and Pilate goes, I don't really agree, but you know what? Wash my hands of it. You guys do whatever you want to do. What a leader, right? It's like, you guys, you want to kill people, kill people. So they still had to go through Rome to do it, but they had the power to stone someone to death. However, this is the interesting moment in the Sermon on the Mount. The council would never stone someone to death for calling someone Raka. Jesus picks a word that's not blasphemous in the Torah. It's not as if the council, the Sanhedrin goes around finding you calling someone empty-headed and kills you for it. Not that they had, say, First Amendment rights, freedom of speech, but they're not that far with their capital punishment. Which leads us to arguing and wrestling as why Jesus would do this at all. And I think it's because his point seems to be that to scorn God's image, which is humanity, is to scorn God. And that's where Jesus lands on it and says, so, so how you talk about your neighbor is reflective of what you think about their creator, whether you realize it or not, he says. So when you open your mouth against him or her, just remember that's the kind of thing that would be brought in front of the council. Everyone listening would have went, no, it's not. We're not going to get brought in front of the council. But the point is not that you'll actually get brought before the council, but that it's on par with the kind of stuff that should bring you before the council. What brings you before the council? Blaspheming God. So to call your neighbor a fool, Jesus says, is a lot like blaspheming God. And everyone there would have given the same look some of you are giving, like head scratching. Like, why would, they, why would he bring this up? Because he wants them to take serious how they view their neighbor. Because you feel good about not killing them? He goes, how many of you talk bad about them? Okay, and then the crowd gets a little antsy. And Jesus goes, what that ought to do, you should treat what you say about them as you would treat what you say about God. Because you wouldn't say certain things about God because you'd have fear of being brought before the council. He says, so I say to you, watch what you say about your brother because you should treat it as if you said it about God. Now, if I say it that way, we get it. So it's like, act as if in your neighbor you see God. And if you could see God in your neighbor, how would you treat your neighbor? You go, well, I'd treat him a lot better. If they acted like Jesus, I'd treat them like Jesus. And that's the point of Jesus' message, is that the world around you doesn't always act like they deserve to be treated or how they should be treated according to people who are fulfilling the law. But that's the great challenge of those of us who think we can keep that sixth commandment. Again, you're not keeping it for righteousness. If you were keeping it for righteousness, forget it. You, you've called somebody a fool. You've bad-mouthed your neighbor. You've talked bad about enough people. You deserve to die. Stoned to death for blasphemy. Again, the Sermon on the Mount is not about you doing these in order to make heaven. It's what happens to those who know heaven is in them. It's the instructions of what comes out of those who know they're part of the kingdom. He goes, that then would reflect in how they treated their neighbor and what they said about them. Now, I don't know what our modern equivalent of raka is. Okay, um, fool is maybe just a word we toss around. Um, I don't. I don't know what. I don't think the point is that it's it's some sort of like individual word. Um, I do think that we have to be careful with how we 
treat the people around us with how we treat our neighbor. Uh, listen to one of the guys that were standing there is Peter. And Peter gets it this way in 1 Peter 2.17. Very, uh, what is this, four little sentences. I know there's a lot of context here, but we only have so much time. And Peter didn't seem to care right here about context. That's why he gives four quick sentences. He's given his own mini Sermon on the Mount. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now, what's fascinating about this is look at who gets honored. The very beginning is honor the people. What's the very end? Honor the king. Those shouldn't be the same honor, right? Peter has been fully indoctrinated by Jesus, or he wouldn't write this. Because you don't put people on the same pedestal that you put royalty. He learned that from Jesus. He goes, so show the respect to your brotherhood that you would show to someone who you believe deserves it. You believe the king deserves honor. He goes, what if you were to give that same honor to the people? Where did Peter get this? I think he got it at, if you say Raka, you go before the council. This was, it would be the kind of thing in which you honor those, whether you believe that they are worthy of that honor or not. And that is part of the challenge of living out Christ in the world. Is, is that honor. Now, that's not it, though. That's not the last of those in Matthew 5.22. So go back. I say to you, whoever's angry with his brother without cause, danger of judgment. Whoever says rock God, danger of the council. And then one more. Whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Okay. Here we go. You, not only is it the last of the last, but it's got hellfire thrown in there, too. We know that's good stuff. You fool is the Greek word moros. And I really wonder if we derive the English word moron. I don't know, but I would have just my little working of Greek and Latin. It usually ends up being somewhere in that ballpark when you start to see a word so close. It's like the Greek word porneo, which is where we get the English word that ends up being pornography. But porneo from the Greek is sex outside of marriage, namely prostitution. And so what ends up happening, we derive a word. So a lot of times, if you'll run words back into their root, you'll get a reason of why we landed on it. So moros is you fool, but it's insipid or dull. And here's the important part. Occasionally, with the connotation of low and deplorable character. So to call someone raka was to call somebody a fool. But, to, but this phrase in the Greek, you fool, moros, is to impugn their character. It's not just to look at them as if maybe they're not intelligent or maybe they aren't worth it, but to actually impugn the character of an individual. And then Jesus uses the phrase, shall be liable to enter Hinnom's veil of fire. Now you might wonder, why doesn't Paul put hell right there? Why, why did Paul type in Hinnom's veil of fire? And I'll tell you why, because the word hell doesn't exist in the Greek not in the way most people in the church are pretty sure it exists, which is a four-letter word that means the spot in the middle of the earth where people burn forever and ever. Um, that is a theology that wasn't birthed through the Greek word Jesus is using here. What Jesus refers to is Gehenna, capital G, E-H-E-N-N-A. Why capital G? Because Gehenna was an actual place, a, a valley outside of Jerusalem that was constantly on fire with refuse, sewage, and the dead. You didn't build your house in the Valley of Hinnom. However, there was a potter's field at the edge of the Valley of Hinnom 
where the poor and the stranger were buried, whose families were either unknown or didn't have enough money to bury them. And so to be buried in hell was to be a person forgotten, or to be cast in the henna meant you were a person who had lost their life and who was so little value thought of that you were cast out to be ate by the carrion and to burn perpetually forever and ever. A phrase that pops up frequently even in the prophecies of the Old Testament in which they were talking about this location outside of Jerusalem. Jesus was using geography in most of his instances of talking about hell because he was talking about a localized place that everyone would have understood and no one wanted to go there. You didn't go on vacation in Hinnom's Vale. You didn't hang out in Hinnom's Vale. If you were there, you were there for wrong reasons and you got out as fast as you could. And it's interesting that Jesus then says, so if you impugn a man's character, you bring upon yourself as if you lived in, the, in Hinnom's Vale. It sounds to me like if you impugn a man's character, you're probably going to bring on the hell that comes by impugning a man's character. And if you've ever impugned a man's character, you know that it's pitching your tent in the valley of hell because there'll be something that kind of bounces back on us in response. Now, does Jesus mean you can't use certain words? Well, let's hope not. Otherwise, Jesus, well, well, otherwise we're probably all in trouble. But also, Jesus himself's in trouble. Matthew 23, 17. Fools and blind, which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? Greek word moros. So Jesus says to the Pharisees, hey, listen up, morons. <laughs> Essentially, it's the word Jesus uses. And he not only uses it in 17, he uses it two verses later in verse 19. And he says to the Pharisees, fools and blind, don't you know? And so I'm going to go into the context of the whole sermon behind what Jesus is doing. But it's obviously not just the usage of a word or not just the usage of a statement. Or if it is, Paul's just as guilty. First, and Paul never misses a chance to be sarcastic. Never in the, in the epistles. 1 Corinthians 15, 36. Hey, morons, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. Moros, same word in the Greek. This is the great resurrection revelation that Paul has. You want to come into a newness of life, you're going to have to die. So if you want to come into the... This is actually encouraging for those of us, all of us, who are going to die someday. All of us are going to die someday. And an encouragement is, hey, don't be a moron. You can't be made alive unless you die. So if you want to move into the resurrected reality, you're going to have to lay down the present reality. I'm not trying to get back into resurrection teaching, but we were there when we were in our John, our first John series, and we, we delved over into, or our John series rather, delved over into eight or ten weeks on resurrection. I don't know if we covered this verse or not. There it is. Paul using the same word. So once again, it's not just using a word or it's not just saying it. And Jesus goes, oh, you don't love people if you say that because otherwise he doesn't love the Pharisees and Paul can't stand his own church. And we know that's not the case. So it's got to be something else. It's obviously not the usage of a term that Jesus condemns because he and Paul both use it. It's the attitude towards your fellow man that's in question. It's literally... In here, out of here. That's why Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so what's in here, as it comes out there, it's, it's kind of tough sledding to realize that Jesus quotes the sixth commandment in front of this. Thou shalt not murder. Not that any of us assume we killed somebody because we open our mouth against them. But maybe 
if we take the Sermon on the Mount serious and we take fulfilling the law serious in the way Paul took it and the way Jesus took it, which is loving your neighbor, then maybe we govern our tongue a little bit more because we're the children of God. That's worth thinking about. I know it's worth me thinking about. And I got a feeling it's probably some of the rest of you or you that maybe once in a while we reconsider what we say about our neighbor. And then here's another one. Matthew 5, 22. I told you there are six, and I'm going to try to do two, and I'm going to make it. <laughs> All right. But I say to you, whoever's angry with his brother without a cause should be in danger of the judgment. We're not done yet, I know. Um, I want to show you the, the, the postscript on this, sort of the PS, and then we're going to get into number two. All right. Whoever says his brother rock is in danger of the council. Whoever says you fool should be in danger of hellfire. Watch this qualifier. Now Jesus gives this. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Why? This almost looks like a left turn. He's been talking about don't murder, don't call him a fool, don't call him a moron. He goes, and then if you're presenting your offering, because how you treat your neighbor is of greater importance than how you worship your God. So some of us think that if we're good prayers, readers, preachers, or worshipers, we can treat people like trash because they're probably going to hell anyway. And Jesus takes a sharp turn because he knows how we think. And he goes, it's not enough to have your gift and be ready to lay it in front of the Father. If while you're laying your gift in front of the Father, you realize it's been a week full of raka and moron, then maybe it's time to lay your gift down, go your way, reconcile to your brother, then come offer your gifts and your talents and your anointings and your word and your testimony and whatever it is you have. And what you have is great, but what you have doesn't define you and it's not the limits of your salvation. And so it's not enough to be a good preacher or a good singer or a good prayer or a good writer or a good worshiper, good church attendee, good board member. This isn't not enough, not, not for your righteous. Again, I know, I know I don't have to qualify this with this room, but I'm going to qualify it anyway. Not for your righteousness. You're not less righteous if you, in any of those ways. You're not less the, the son, daughter of God. You're not less in your identity. But there's also more to it than that. It's like the statement we made a couple weeks ago. There's, there's more to Christianity than the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, but there's never less. And I like that. There's never less than. So keep that in mind that Jesus isn't giving us an excuse at that offering. Okay, a couple more on the postscript, sort of the PPS, post, postscript, 2526. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him. Lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hands you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Pretty good idea to find a way to get along. If you don't find a way to get along, you're going to end up in your own particular Hinnom's Vale, which you've already been warned about in previous texts. Because if you have a problem with how you say, what you say about your neighbor and how you treat your neighbor, you're going to at least learn how to get along with them as long as you must. Assuredly, I say to you, if you don't get along, you will by no means get out of there till you've paid the last penny. Don't come... Don't come to me after you fail to get along with your neighbor and ask me to take care of your neighbor. Mm 
Jesus says. Don't turn to the Father afterwards and go, yeah, but you got to get them off my back. And he goes, I've, I've put them in front of you every day. Every day was an opportunity to talk to them, to love them, to know them. If you keep pushing it off and pushing it off and pushing it off, so don't be surprised if they take you in and you will stay till you pay every penny. He goes, that's the way that it goes. And if you, we can avoid it by paying attention to this instruction. This is loaded, right? There's a lot there. So what sounded, what had to sound like a really easy opening salvo in the sermon is, thou shalt not murder. And everybody goes, yes, we're good to go, man. We got this. Bring on the next one. And he goes, not so fast. And then the time you get down four or five verses later, you go, okay, can we just move on to the next one? And then lo and behold, what does he move on to? You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say, you know, everyone in the crowd at this point, they've already thought they were off the hook with the sixth commandment and then it got worse. And then they hear this and everyone suddenly has to go to the bathroom. <laughs> like you can see people getting up at the Sermon on the Mount and going over to the porta potties. That's assuming they had porta potties. You, you got to plan it out to have porta potties. So I don't know. You've heard it was said to those of old, you should not commit adultery. I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And it doesn't take me even commenting on this text. We will, of course. It doesn't even take me commenting on this text for us to realize that if you put this on the back of the last one, in which it was more than meets the eye, then lo and behold, there's probably some things in this that are more than meets the eye as well and not necessarily in a good way. Because if you move on to the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, in almost any room you go in, in your life, if you get to the sixth commandment, most of the room hasn't broken it. But if you go into enough rooms, you're going to get into it where someone's broken the seventh one. And if you'll notice, as you go down, these get, it gets more and more that way as Jesus works his way through these. And so it's, again, not a matter of what makes a man righteous. If you don't commit adultery, then you're righteous. If you committed adultery, then you're not righteous. We, we know better because our righteousness is in Christ, not in what we do. So if you have committed adultery or murder or you lie, or whatever you cover in these sermons, your salvation is not in your ability to do or not to do these things. It's in Christ. Your forgiveness is in Christ. So what can Jesus mean in regards to adultery? Well, let's start with a little bit of the Greek. The word woman is the Greek word gyne. You can derive more English words. Congratulations. Distinct from the Greek word for maiden or the Greek word for virgin, almost always translated wife. And for some reason, the English didn't do that. And it might have helped. That if a man looks upon a wife to commit adultery with her in his heart, the topic is a man who wishes to violate the marriage covenant of another man's wife. So let me give you a little reprieve straight from the Greek. Jesus doesn't say that if you look at another human being and you lust after them, you, it's as if you slept with them. No. Jesus does say that adultery of the heart has less to do with actually committing adultery and with going after that covenantally which doesn't belong to you. So in biblical terms, adultery is sleeping with someone who's already married or someone who is already married sleeping with someone they're not married to. Both breaches of the covenant between a husband and a wife. So if you're in covenant, 
you are in covenant with one person. To go outside of that is a breach of the covenant with that person. Okay? Jesus condemning the predator who goes after the woman who's in a relationship because he wants what he cannot have. And Jesus is telling us that wanting what you cannot have is not only an offense if you go get it. The offense is in the desire to want what you cannot have. Okay. Again, not if you looked at somebody of the opposite sex and thought, wow, they, they look really good. Oh, you committed adultery. He doesn't say that in the Greek. He doesn't say that in the English. But he does refer to something that the Torah takes very serious. The relationship between a husband and a wife. And if you see another person's spouse, they are off limits. Simple. Everyone in the crowd would have understood this sermon. If you see someone that's married to someone else, they are off limits. If you desire them, they remain off limits. It doesn't matter how much you desire them. It doesn't matter how much you lust after them. It doesn't matter how much you want them. They remain off limits. Therefore, the husband in this situation of that woman is not your obstacle. You are. This is what Jesus is saying. The husband's not the problem. If you could just get rid of the husband, you could have the woman. He goes, no, that's not how it works. And you go, well, what? Who would have ever thought that? You should have had a light bulb go off when I said, the husband's not the obstacle. Israel's first great king has Israel's second great king with a woman of whom he sleeps with her and removes her husband as the obstacle. David, Bathsheba, you know the story. And by removing her husband, he goes and has what he cannot have. The famous story comes to him from Nathan. It goes, a man had one little lamb and his family raised the lamb and his neighbor had a thousand sheep and a stranger came in to the, the man with a thousand sheep and he didn't kill one of his sheep. He took the sheep from the neighbor's house. And David goes, let me find that man and I'll kill him. And Nathan goes, you are that man because you took someone else's lamb. You took what didn't belong to you because you had the power to do it. Be careful with the power that you have. And he goes, even if you don't use the power that you have, he goes, there's an issue in here that causes us to steer towards an issue out there. So this is not a verse meant to condemn every second of your life because, man, I remember going through this one as a young man. And, like, I'm thinking, well, I'm, yeah, I'm getting adultery like crazy because, you know, I'm, I just, and I'm, you know, I'm a teenage boy, hormones raging, and I'm pretty positive I'm breaking Matthew 5, 3, 27 pretty much all the time. <laughs> but I didn't understand context. I didn't un certainly didn't understand Greek, and I didn't know what Jesus was talking about. Now, Sexuality, of course, is a different animal in the, in the context of the Bible, particularly in the context of the Old Testament. Like we used the word pornea, porneo earlier. Um, there's not a context of casual sexual encounters in the Bible because to have casual sexual encounters, you need to have liberated women. There is no such thing as a liberated woman in the Bible. Therefore, there were no casual sexual encounters. If you were a man that wanted to have sex, you got married. If you didn't get married, you went to a prostitute. There wasn't like this girl you dated and she was liberated and you slept together and then you had to go pray about whether that was right. 
If you slept with an unmarried girl, she became your wife. Because it was her only... I, these, these, are the, these are the things that, are not, that don't fall palatable on the modern ear. So you just have to say them in the context of what they were. Marrying a man was the only upward social ladder for a woman. There was no other upward mobility for a woman. So she married and she tried to marry well. The better she married, the higher she could move up the ladder. Didn't marry, don't move at all. Maybe even move downward. So there were two Greek words. One was a female prostitute and the other was a male prostitute because there were sexual encounters in the ancient world that would involve paying a female and there were sexual encounters that were involved in paying a male and the male was actually rarely paid. And most of the time the male was a teenage boy or a boy and almost every prostitute was a slave. And so they were indentured for the purposes of sex. When you get to Romans 1, that's what Paul's hammering at when he goes to work on sexual immorality under the Roman Empire because it was filtering over into the mentality of the church that if it was socially acceptable there, maybe it was socially acceptable within the church. And Jesus had other plans. So you go, what were Jesus' plans? Covenant. God functions his love within covenant. And that was his plans for us. And so to look outside of covenant, don't try to knock the obstacles down. Realize that the obstacle is probably going on in here, which leads me to this. If this is the next verse, by the way, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you. It's more profitable to you that one of your members perish than your whole body to be cast into Hinnom's veil. Once again, Gehenna. 30. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you. It's more profitable to you that one of your members perish than that for your whole body be cast into hell. Okay, why is this on the backside of adultery? Because Jesus is showing you that whatever the offense is, it's not the married man or the married woman that's your obstacle in this situation. The offense is you. So I say this, the offense is not the world around you. The unattainable married woman. The offense could be you, your eye and your hand. What I call, and I think this is the reason why eye and hand is used and not foot and elbow. Jesus could have used anything he didn't. Because your eye is your perspective and your hand is your grasp. Your perspective and your grasp could be causing you problems. You are better to change your perspective and your grasp than to perish beneath them. Remove the offense, lest the offense do you in. Simple advice. So you look around you in life and you see the issue, you see the stuff, your heart longs after. It goes, a lot of what you're, if your heart longs after that which you cannot have, don't go try to change the world so you can have it. Go change you. Because if you change you, it's a lot easier to change you than to change the world. The world isn't going to change for you. If you look around at your life and you go, man, things aren't going well. Let me give you some advice. Hope that it's you. Because if it's not you, there's nothing you can do about it. But if it's you, there's something you better do about it. Right? So I, if stuff goes wrong in my circle, mind, marriage, life, money, body, I hope to God it's something I'm doing wrong. 
because that, I got a hand I can cut off and I can pluck out. That's what Jesus... Okay, if you ever wondered if Jesus utilizes metaphor and allegory, you better hope so. <laughs> this is proof, right? What good would it do you to chop off, to poke out eyeballs and chop off hands in the grand scheme of having a heart issue? Nothing. Wouldn't do you any good. And so Jesus is speaking in terms of allegory. If that which separates you, that which causes you that obstacle, if you can remove it, remove it. Why? Because if you don't remove it, it goes to work on removing you. You go, yeah, but I'm a saved person. None of that stuff should matter to me. You're, you are the righteousness of God in Christ. Nothing's going to change that. You are His son. You are His daughter. You are forgiven. You are a member of the kingdom of heaven. But you are still functioning in a world of the natural, dealing with natural people. And Jesus is showing you what it would look like if you used the way of the kingdom in the midst of the earth. Right? I leave these moments more excited than when I went in, even though they're super challenging. And that's okay. I love that. I have a Jesus, the federal head of my kingdom. I have a king who has given me the equipment of his father and said, this is what it'll look like as you live this out on the earth. And I don't forsake you when you fail. And I don't run out on you. And I don't kick you out. But if you've wondered why there are brush fires in your life and there's junk you can't solve, son, some of it is because of some of this. And this is your answer. And so this, to me, this is beautiful because I'm figuring out why some stuff happens. And I go, okay, some of it just happens. Some of it happens because of this guy right here. And what would happen if I took that serious every day? Well, then, then that becomes our journey and our challenge. You have heard it was said, but I say to you next week, four more without the intro, so I know we can do it together. That's 15 minutes per point. We can do that. We can all do that. And we'll do that next week as we cover those last four. But I say unto you, some of them very specific chapter verse stuff. And Jesus is going to come along and go, got a better way. You can live in that, but I got a better way. And that's the good news. All right. Let's pray. Let's apply this to our lives where we where it's beyond us, we leave that at the foot of the master. He shows us how to do it. Where we failed in it, we leave that in, in his blood. He is our redemption. He is our strength. He is still king in this kingdom. Father, thank you. What a privilege tonight to open the word, to take an adventure, to listen to Jesus, to have him say to us, you have heard it said. And inside of you have heard it said, I bring a lot of my opinions and my thoughts. And then you flip it and say, but I say to you. And when you say, but I say unto you, Lord, there's a lot of stuff in there. And I want it. And I know that it's the ingredients of what it means to follow the king and his kingdom. Bring that out in us as we walk this out. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.